Hello, everyone listening to this. I'm sitting in sunny LA, California, staying with some new friends and uh, settling into my first full week in this city. I really haven't done much, but I am. Uh, well, I haven't done much in the city, but I have been writing a ton. I am launching my podcast this week. So when you hear this, uh, it'll be quite a few weeks after that, but an exciting time. And, uh, and just the beginning of the conversations that will ensue because of this. So still laying some foundations. It's taken about three months on the road to, you know, keep writing about five, 6,000 words every week. Uh, and of course, try and put this podcast together. So I've been recording the entire time and just trying to get all of those little things in place so that when I meet somebody extraordinary or have something that I want to share, there are the avenues available to be able to share it with people that are interested. There's all sorts of other things going on behind the scenes, um, but that's stuff that I will slowly process and share as it resonates and feels ready to share. So with that in mind, enjoy the next podcast episode and hope you're having a great day. Bozeman, Montana, to me, wasn't famous for anything. I had driven past it or through it several times on the well-worn route between Colorado and Calgary, our family careening along in a minivan, negotiating against daylight. If I ever stayed there, it was likely due to a late-night respite from the road where we couldn't quite make it as far as we wanted. A reluctant pit stop, temporary, nothing more. Landing here, now, it served the same purpose. The airport was too small for an airport and too large for a rustic cabin, but they had gone all in on the aesthetic of the latter, with large river stone fireplace, wooden beams, and sprawling ski chalet roof lines. Pair that with the frigid temperatures outside and I was certain Mrs. Claus would be baking cookies by baggage claim. I collected my bag from the carousel and called an Uber. For a moment, I considered trying to make friends with someone to split the fare, but I really just wanted to be alone. I had booked a room at the Quality Inn right off the highway outside of town because it was the cheapest place I could find. I knew that at some point, likely too soon, money would become quite tight and I needed to exercise fiscal caution today so that I wouldn't curse myself months or weeks from now when gas money or emergency supplies had been consumed in the form of luxury lodgings. As a general rule, if you have to put the word quality in the name, you're probably stretching the truth. The hallways were yellowed and worn. I walked by the pool and vowed to never dip a toe. The elevator felt like a slot machine you insert yourself into just to test your luck. As I swung the door open to the room itself, I was punched in the nose by mothballs, the trademark scent of someone hiding sinister secrets. Even in trying to be thrifty, the hotel was $120 US a night. I had only booked a couple of nights just until the van arrived. More than anything, this was a place to recharge after the wild chaos of setting my life on fire and escaping the ashes. It was the first night of the adventure, and I was exhausted and waiting for the emotions to catch up. What have I done? What have I lost? What am I going to do? 
I sat on the edge of the bed, sliding off the oversized backpack and stared out the window. It was late and dark, but the glow of three brand names radiated into my bedroom from a nearby neon mecca, McDonald's, Motel 6, home of the 90-foot water slide, and across the headlight-speckled freeway, Walmart. Hello, America. I have arrived. I hadn't been in the States for a couple years, and the last time I had, I was caught in between the police and a shooter in a public showdown in downtown Seattle. Good to be back, I thought. I kept my coat on and headed for the door. What would have been a three-minute drive was a 45-minute round-trip walk to Walmart. I loaded up on some groceries to hold me over for a few days, pulled chicken and vegetables for a salad, a loaf of bread, some cans of tuna, mayo, and a 99-cent can opener, so I'd be putting my money on the can when that showdown happened. My gloves and hat were safely packed in the coldly anticipated van, which made for a biting start, me dragging my supplies back to the hotel room, the stars providing the only consistent street light. I ate a quick salad and crawled into bed. The sheets were papery, the pillow reminiscent of a potato chip bag. It would have been comical, except it was simply too maddening that our sheets weren't large enough for the bed. I laid at a diagonal to compensate for the cold shoulder. What used to be a display of opulence now felt like contending with cut corners. The next morning turned out to be the start of three full days in that hotel, sifting through the rubble of life in Canada. I needed to check with the shipping company that the van would be picked up soon. It was only a 10-hour drive from Calgary to Bozeman, so once they actually picked it up, I would be in business in no time. I still had work on my plate that I needed to delegate or wrap up. I set up AMA for the van, canceled a few final subscriptions, and made time for writing. There was nothing glamorous about sitting in the complimentary breakfast room, tying up loose ends, but I was proud of the industriousness, checking off one task after the other. It was the lowest form of productivity. I still had no idea what my purpose would be, but the paperwork would be in order. Within a couple days, two things became clear. First, the van would take some time, maybe a week, but there was nothing that I could do to rush its open-ended arrival. Second, I couldn't fathom spending this kind of money on this kind of hotel while caught in this kind of waiting game. I started researching other accommodations. It turns out that Bozeman had a main street two miles away and that there was a hostel with bunk beds where I could stay. Good, but not great. I updated my couch surfing profile. I'd used couch surfing in Europe a few years earlier and had great success meeting incredible people. Meeting people, at least, was definitely part of why I was here. I wanted to connect. I wanted to learn. I wanted to contribute. And if there were any hosts signed up in this random little town, perhaps one of them would like to spend some quality time with me. I sent out three messages to the only people that had been active online in years, and almost right away, I got a response from Andrew. I was welcome to stay with him for a couple days or so. Come on by any time. I walked down to Main Street and was shocked to discover the contrasting view compared to my quality hotel room. This was a veritable western town, complete with red brick facades on buildings no more than three stories tall. Coffee, restaurants, outdoor clothing, these were the main staples to entice tourists to stay just a little longer. I didn't even realize this place had tourists. It was animated but not congested, and it was a street for window shopping, busking, jaywalking. The parking was free, the pace was gentle, and almost everything for sale was high quality and local. A hardware store occupied enough of the premium real estate that you could tell that this was still a main street that served its residents. 
And yet, one block off the strip, you saw the first signs of monolithic towers beginning to rise, old buildings halfway through modernization and new gaping holes being dug. This town was entrenched in its picturesque past while charging up for its first major thrust into a corporate future. I had thought rural places like this, much like my notions of the entire Midwest, were dying as everyone flocked to the coast and big cities elsewhere. As it turns out, Bozeman was the fastest growing American municipality in 2018, 2019, and 2020. Bozeman traced its roots back to the 1860s as a gateway town to various ranching and mining areas nearby and quickly became an established agricultural hub. Montana was the Wild West, full of stories of gold rushes and explorers, cowboys gone rogue, and Indians who simply wouldn't leave or die without a fight. Western culture is something that is often glorified as superior, but I could already tell that indigenous culture would become something I'm curious about. More accurately, what did Western culture destroy to become the best? There was very little to read in this town about the many tribes that had occupied Montana for thousands of years before. I wondered at their stories, the wisdom, the knowledge of their natural environment, the ways in which they took care of their body. Western culture is destructive by nature and proportionately self-righteous, baking into us the idea from the youngest age that under Western leadership, we will conquer everything that threatens us. And everything is a threat. Anyone who looks at the state of America knows that this expulsion of the prior diversity and wisdom, ironically, is exactly why it is now a failing empire. After grabbing lunch at the Rockin' R bar, where the waitress was genuinely friendly but also genuinely bored, I walked a few extra blocks to Andrew's house. All I knew is that Andrew lived with three roommates. They were all either in university at Montana State or working random hustles to save some cash. They lived on Story Street, and each house along the way there looked to have withstood a hundred Montana winters or more, and the results ranged between dilapidated to proudly resilient. Some houses looked like they were awaiting a bulldozer any day now, while others had freshly painted doors in quirky pastel tones. Most yards were bedazzled with birdhouses and wind chimes. The old trees towered above it all, leafless and craggy, taking the brunt of the breeze. When I arrived at Andrew's place, I smiled. It was easily one of the more disheveled houses on the street, but there was something highly distinct about it. From the outside, it looked like some sort of 1950s L-shaped American bungalow, but upon closer inspection, it was purpose-built as an apartment building with seven separate front doors all looking onto an oversized driveway that housed a row of somewhat sheltered parking stalls. Piles of leaves resided wherever the wind had last left them. Two of the screen doors were unlatched and bent ajar. A small creek ran right beside the house below a stub retaining wall, and a makeshift fire pit was pushed up a little too close against it. Andrew was in the driveway vacuuming his car, wild curly blonde hair, black rimmed glasses, and he was taller than I. His tone was direct, understated, and friendly. Hey man, come on in. This is one of my roommates, Connor. Connor, this is Schwa, that couch surfer I told you about. We have a couple other guests flying in later tonight, so they're going to take the basement and you can have this couch. Make yourself at home. We keep things pretty casual around here. I looked at the living room. 
A wood-paneled feature wall, haphazardly hung posters, and garage sale art with cracked frames, some small antlers with a picture of Jennifer Aniston propped in them. Skis in one corner, a record player in the other. A pull-up bar graced the doorway to the hall, and the hall led to the basement. Incense had been burned recently. The two couches and an oversized chair had surely all seen the side of a road somewhere before they got here. Plenty of plants, all of them thriving in the south-facing sunlight. It must have been cold outside, but it was warm and inviting in here. Hey man, said Connor, who was sitting on the couch I'd be sleeping on, his laptop open but discarded beside him. He was drinking tea and looked eager to embrace me as a welcome distraction from whatever he was working on. You're the couch surfer with the van, right? His clothes were nondescript and well-worn. He pulled his long brown hair back into a ponytail with a boyish, charismatic smile. Yeah, soon. It should be here in a few days, no, no doubt by early next week, so I'm just hanging out in Bozeman until it arrives. I put down my bag in an area that had less stuff than the rest of the room and hung up my coat. Oh man, nice. Do you ski? Uh, not really. Do you? He blinked. Dude, like, every day. Everyone skis here. The mountains are home, man. There's nothing better than being outside, alone, getting stoned, and ripping through snow. But anyways, right now I'm just trying to get through this essay about Russian propaganda films and their anti-individualistic mentality. You see, their films don't have main characters because they don't want anyone standing out. It's more about the principles that everyone should live by. Fitting in. Unity. Obedience. I've got like 500 words left, but my mind is just racing right now, man. I always have so many thoughts and it's hard to capture one idea before the next one starts. I plopped down in the armchair and tried to keep up with Connor's mind. You need an outline, dude, I said. You gotta let all those thoughts fall into different topics without even trying to articulate them perfectly right away. Shit, I know. I'll try that next time. It's all good. I work better under pressure. I'll just get this done later. He closed his laptop and reached for a little box under the coffee table. By the way, we smoke a lot of weed here. I've, I've got my medical card. Hopefully you're okay with that. I was okay with that. As it turned out, none of the other roommates smoked weed, so I was welcome company. Andrew declined my help with cleaning the car, so I pulled out my new book my friend Rob had given me, Indian Creek Chronicles. As it turns out, it was about a man who had signed up to live solo in the wilderness for a winter and was then confronted with his lack of preparation or knowledge about how to survive the magnitude of such a decision. A fitting gift from someone who was always prepared because he valued preparedness, to someone who rarely was because he valued spontaneity. The moral of the book, though, like most truths, seemed to favor a middle path. Do not let people drag you into false dichotomies and black and white perspectives. When you see one looming, you can usually confuse them and create a more valid position by suggesting the path forward is likely a blend of principles and not the superseding of one by the other. And the more multifaceted a situation, the less stubborn any participant can be in asserting their dogmatic, simplistic solutions. Later that evening, the third roommate, Caleb, showed up with some groceries. They were making grilled cheese sandwiches tonight. I was relieved to be able to contribute some chicken that I'd purchased for my salad. I didn't want to be a mooch, and I'm uncomfortable receiving things unless I can reciprocate or contribute. In his own right, Caleb was a hard worker, although it seemed he was harder on himself than anything else. 
Between working on a ranch for a quirky old hippie named Sandy and supplementing that with meal delivery through DoorDash, he was always focused on how to be productive, make money, save money, figure out how to get ahead. He paired this drive with a passionate hunger for Zen Buddhism, partly to remind himself to relax, but partly to keep pushing himself to change into someone who could relax. It looked like a passionate war for peace. After grilled cheese, some friends came over toting guitars and amps and set up in the basement around Caleb's drum kit. Everyone had longer hair than where I had come from. Don't forget those other couch surfers are staying down there tonight, Andrew mentioned. They get in later though, it should be fine. There are many timetables tangled into this house. Everyone was always up to something. I wasn't up to anything. Caleb's drum kit was just like the rest of the house, eclectic, unique, and perfect. He didn't have any tom drums, but he did have a wine bottle and a bent license plate. His throne, that's what drummers call a seat, was a white upside down painter's bucket. Caleb made the whole set sing, while the other two guitarists and a bassist toyed with various funk rhythms and bluesy, meandering melodies, Caleb was able to effortlessly transition between at least six genres at the drop of a hi-hat. I briefly joined in on bass just to get my participation ribbon, but then just sat back and enjoyed the show. A girl sat quietly beside the band, listening and working on a painting for an upcoming art sale. She was talented, and the art was this wild mix of psychedelic colors depicting a typical Montana mountain scene. After an hour or so, the musicians and artists migrated upstairs and started trading tips on which ski runs would be open at Bridger Bowl, which gear would be on sale at a variety of outdoor stores, and when they'd fit in skiing and bouldering around their part-time jobs and classes. Later on, the jammers left and other couch surfers arrived. I'd already been here six hours or so, so I felt like we all had visitors. These two, mother-daughter from Los Angeles, were coming to Bozeman in search of places to relocate to, largely due to the futile and oppressive COVID restrictions that had invaded their home state. Andrew and Connor explained it to me later. This laid-back local environment is why Bozeman was growing. Bozeman used to be shared between old ranchers and ski bums, and they figured out how to coexist with each other because now they like different things. And they figured out how to coexist with each other because they like different things, and none of them had much money anyways. Now, places like this are becoming congested with big city folk who say they love it and yet seem to need everything to look different. The new architecture is clearly being used to attract or cater to people from the West Coast, they said. Apparently, this migration was a national trend of post-capitalist proportions. A dramatic influx of Americans were seeking refuge away from the eye-burning smog, the offended crowds, the corrosive politics, and all the other dark sides of a state that, to me, had always been synonymous with paradise. Sure enough, however, the California duo were giddy when they saw the snow in the forecast, and they busied themselves with plans to look at real estate the next day. Late the following evening, Caleb suggested Wim Hof breathing and a cold plunge in the creek that ran beside the house. Though it was approaching freezing outside, which made getting wet and cold seemingly redundant, we all piled into the creek for an average of 40 frigid seconds, with Caleb outlasting us all. On the third day, with still no clear arrival of the van in sight, I settled into a seat at Rockford Coffee and began writing. The words flowed feverishly, and it was clear that they'd been sloshing around in my mind waiting for the first chance of escape. 
I had this idea that what I wrote over time could become something useful to others, to tell a story, to extricate significance, to inspire questions and actions in others. I don't know where this story goes, but I know that I have this deep desire to throw myself into a high degree of discomfort and let it reshape me. I would be at the mercy of everything from changing weather and shifting emotions to new connections and unexpected setbacks. There was fundamentally no safety net. There was no healthcare, limited funds, and even more concerning, limited skills. Of all the things that could go wrong, how many of them would I be able to recover from? My skin physically felt a little barer at the thought of a single misstep, a bite from a stray dog, or how an errant slip of a knife could upend my health, my capability, and my momentum. At least, whatever happened, I would write about it. Every week, I decided then, I would recount the moments and reflections that mattered. If I could hold the attention of just a few hundred paid subscribers with words and ideas, I might be able to sustain this into a journey of self-discovery and greater contribution to the world around me, online and in person. I wrote out the welcome emails for the free and paid subscribers and felt the glow of a new optimism at dawn. I also noticed how the ambition casts long shadows of doubt across the same landscape. The potential for doubt is equal to the potential for ambition. But notice how the doubt is always a half step behind. When we have an exciting idea and then believe we can do something, it's important to start acting quickly. If we stop to worry, we'll hesitate, we'll falter. If we keep moving forward, we gain clarity about our capabilities. We can let the hesitation clip at our heels, for there will always be justifiable reasons for failure that we should consider. But if we keep moving, the fear cannot ensnare our feet. Back at the house, I had news. Gents, I started cautiously. There's no pressure here, but it looks like the van is going to be a few more days at least. I'm happy to stay at the hostel on Main Street, but if you don't mind having me, I'd love to hang. I didn't want to overstay my welcome. There had been no indication that I had, but the Californians had moved on. I would migrated down to a more secluded basement and started to feel more at home. To counterbalance their hospitality, I had started cooking meals for the boys, doing dishes, and generally trying to improve their experience. If they enjoyed their space more with me in it, I might be welcome a little longer. Yeah, man, no worries, they said. We've had people stay here for a couple weeks sometimes. We know you're in a bit of a tricky spot, and anyways, we appreciate the help around here. I had already stayed there as long as I had expected to. Now, the latest estimate from the shipping company was that it would be another three or four days. It was a strange combination of feeling like I should really be on my way and also starting to rest into this house, into this town, into myself. I was walking nearly every day, writing more than I'd written in months. And in the first few days, I'd already finished a second book. When the Emperor Was Divine was about the irrational prejudices in the United States during World War II, where they rounded up nearly 120,000 Japanese Americans and shipped them to concentration camps in Utah and Texas. Men were separated from their families and interrogated. The families were given little information about where the fathers were, and more importantly, when anyone would be released. Most were held for multiple years until the war was over. They returned to their looted homes and were deemed largely unemployable. Forty years later, the government acknowledged that the tactics of segregating people, deemed so-called a threat, were actually not rational, not productive, and were mostly based on racist policies. 
fear-based decisions made by experts at the highest levels of government to appease the masses by removing people that looked different and lived differently. Fearful American voters wanted revenge and safety from anyone that looked like they might want to bomb Pearl Harbor, and the American government complied. We generally assume this kind of divisiveness happens in other places, other times. We also tend to assume that our divisiveness is different and justified. But this is actually one of the greatest downfalls of our latest renditions of democracy. A splinter of angry, fearful voters makes such a racket about their cause that the government panders to their needs and makes reactionary policy decisions based on heavily marketed agendas. The Canadian government has already acknowledged that their own COVID policies are to appease the polls rather than based on some cohesive strategy with clearly defined outcomes. You can tell because there are none of the latter. You saw Trudeau choose divisiveness during the last election. Trudeau's most resonant rhetoric saw him specifically say that he would protect good, law-abiding Canadians from those anti-vaxxers and from those people. It made me queasy to know that he was choosing those words because they would get him votes, and not because that divisiveness was necessary or logical. The anger against the scapegoats peaked during the election, but only started to simmer once the voices and actions were suppressed of anybody who had suspicion about the safety and efficacy of mandating pharmaceutical dependence. And in virtually all places where the unvaccinated are not allowed to go, COVID continues to spread, often at higher rates than before the vaccine was forced. The public, however, is quiet now because the election is over. The marketing campaign of hate is suspended. To create an us is to create a them, and your favorite political party will jump at the opportunity to villainize someone in exchange for securing a few more votes. Here in Bozeman, there are no signs for masks on the doors. Nobody cared whether you were vaccinated, no businesses were closed, nothing was socially distanced and everyone was going about their lives. More than half the city was vaccinated and COVID cases were absolutely still a reality and hospitals were a little fuller than usual, but life moves on. All the same realities that I remember from home without any of the angry rhetoric, divisiveness and paranoia. It's important to understand how much of a choice it is to choose kindness to have acceptance about the fragility of life, and to decide not to live in fear and with resentment. You just don't need to control people to feel safe. When I walk down the streets of Bozeman, one of my favorite things is that everyone says hello as they pass by. Like many small towns, the residents still see each other as people with stories, contexts, value. Locals stop to chat with each other. The pace of their conversations are meandering and gentle. By my standards, a conversation between any two people in any setting seemed to go on for at least twice as long as necessary, as if to imply that they are actually enjoying each other's company. More striking than any of this, there was always plenty of eye contact between the strangers as they passed by. Not a quick glance, but a prolonged smile paired with inquisitive eyes. It was less of a, hi, how are you, and more of a, hi, who are you, baked into each warmest, brief interaction between two people walking in opposite directions. People were in Bozeman because they chose to be here, and more were moving here each day. They chose the mountains, the skiing, the climbing, the eye contact, the brick buildings and autonomy over their bodies. 
The energy that comes from that choice is tangible. You can always tell the difference in energy between people who are doing what they're told and people who are doing what they chose. Both lead to problematic outcomes and hardships, of course. Welcome to life. But the spirit of living in alignment with what resonates with you will always win out as a more desirable environment. When you pair that sense of self-actualization with a hearty, natural environment, you cultivate an inner strength, a self-respect, and a respect for nature, both life and death, and that keeps your problems in perspective. If you take care of the world, the world takes care of you. If you take care of your body, your body takes care of you. If you live life at the mercy of the whims of others, you will invite stress and anxiety. If you take ownership of your time and your energy and aim to do simple good for others and the planet, you will be empowered and connected. Eye contact reminds us we are human. Slow conversations remind us that we have stories and time, but not too much time because don't forget, we all die anyway. I have often been dismissive of small towns because they are stuck in the past, because their simplistic lives don't provide relevant insights to the growing complexity of problems faced in larger cities. But after seeing what the deleterious and misguided impacts were of being offended, of feeling unsafe and trying to control others as a result, I now recognized that they simply didn't have the same problems in big cities here because they hadn't created them yet. It wasn't perfect, sure, but there was still hope in Bozeman, and the small town self-empowering tenacity has deep roots. Strange that I would look to a small white town growing from the familiar roots in having destroyed previous cultures as somehow the home of simple values, genuine humanity, and live and let live. How had a history of cultural attrition 200 years ago become a haven for simple, nature-loving values? Was this everything that was wrong or everything that was right? As it turns out, both can be true because left long enough in a quiet setting, the peace and love grow back nicely for those who survived. When we zoom out far enough, the cycle becomes obvious. We humans, we show up to a new place. That place is full of wonder and glory and opportunity. Upon claiming it as our new home, we promptly forget that we came here because we like it the way that it is. As it turns out, we like most of it, but not all of it. We need less trees and more fields. We need a dam, not a stream. Actually, some of it is great, but most of it needs to be contended with. We'll need roads and sewers and schools and stores. What else can we modify and change? Should we build walls? Is it clean enough? But couldn't it be cleaner? Less nature, please. Less dirt. Should we make more things to help contend with the other things we've already created? We slowly wrestle with the environment, subjugating any existing person or natural force, anything that does not comply with our ever-inflating expectations. More traffic lanes for the more cars, which justifies the more houses to use them. More rules, more control, more safety, more stability, whatever the fearful and greedy human demands. Now, a fork in the road. If the population stays small, the environmental and political impacts stay limited, tenable, sustainable. If a population expands, the rate and magnitude of destruction accelerates. And while all this change is thought to be solving problems, we are only solving problems we decided were problems and created for ourselves. 
Plus, if there's diversity to conquer, then we'll need to work harder to destroy that problem too. We ought to work longer hours to get ahead of these problems, so we're going to need more childcare. We'll need more buildings and people. And against a backdrop of economic desperation intentionally built into the game of capitalism, someone else will always be willing to work harder for less. We'll need some prescriptions to solve this lengthening workday, and physio for the bad posture, plus more TV shows to soothe us at the end of the day that we might as well have never had. We are the Greek gods who meddle endlessly with mere mortals but can never quite clean up the mess. We are also the mortals. We are also the mess. For at least 70,000 years since our brains began to expand, likely due to learning to cook meat over a fire, humans have been guilty of creating far more problems than we or nature can solve. The mess grows, and so we need to assemble larger teams to coordinate incomplete solutions. Cities coordinating with cities, nations with nations, until the previously untamed oceans and forests are gasping for air, until opioids and desertification and big data simply become too overwhelming, even for us. And when it becomes too much, move. Where? Most likely to a place that has been less changed, less destroyed, and less compromised by the frenzy of too many other humans. To that other fork in the road where the population stayed small. How wondrous this new place. How glorious our new home. How magnificent the opportunity that awaits. What's the first thing that we should do now that we're here? What should we change? 